Hello and welcome to part two of this two-part series on COVID and its impact on persons with disability. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvy, developmental pediatrician from London, Ontario. Today I'm joined by Dr. Olaf Kraus de Camargo and Dr. Kinga Posniak from the Canchild Centre for Childhood Disability Research. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for making the time. Early on in the COVID pandemic, Drs. Posniak and Kraus de Camargo saw an opportunity to formalize a lot of the questions that many of us were asking. How are children, youth, and young adults with disability being impacted by this pandemic? They put together a survey that was distributed across Canada through mail-outs, parent organizations, websites, and social media, asking individuals and caregivers about their experiences during the first few months of this pandemic. They intentionally kept their questions broad and left room for comments. They also conducted qualitative interviews with nine caregivers to dig deeper into those experiences. And they're here today to chat about what they heard from families. So Olaf, the survey reached a lot of people. You had over 160 Canadians respond to the survey. Can you tell us a little bit more about the study population and the types of questions you were asking? Yeah, thank you, Jackie. Uh, yeah, we, we started the survey, as you mentioned, at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, the main concern initially was, okay, how are we going to, uh, to get tested, to get screened? How accessible is that all, especially if you think about the kids that have sensory issues, have mobility issues, uh, how can they access those services? And then also, how can they be best protected and best supported uh, during the pandemic? At the beginning, we thought it would be something very quick. Uh, we weren't expecting to sit here now in November and still being uh, distancing and using protective devices and so on. So I think the it was a good entry point to the study, but I think over the months, new questions came up and, and new situations have developed as well. Right. So from the respondents, we, we had uh, about 117 uh, parents or caregivers. So they were the majority who responded. We initially wanted also to have uh, feedback directly from people with disabilities, but there were very few and maybe our distribution was not so well geared towards these people. Mm -hmm. uh, Interestingly, the majority were female, so mostly mothers that take for their, take care of their kids were the respondents as well, which I found interesting in a situation where people were all at home, the fathers were also at home and yeah. would be able to respond if they had been aware of it, uh, maybe. Uh, so that's an interesting perspective, and it's, I think, more and more seen now how that pandemic is impacting especially women and especially women that are working Certainly. and now have to work from home and take care of their kids as well. Uh, the majority of the respondents were also from Ontario but we have some responses from Alberta and BC and Quebec uh, and the other provinces as, as well. Um, and the study is now also being replicated in French in Quebec to have a, a further interest uh, and to get more input from, from the population there, as well in other countries. So we have uh, now a translation into Portuguese. So there are some results coming in from Brazil. Uh, in Russia as well, uh, some of the questions are being used in another survey in Germany. And the Questions have also been translated into Spanish and it's planned to be rolled out in, in Latin America and Spain as well. That's amazing. So something that started out with a small idea to find out what was happening right in the moment has really blossomed into something more with more questions. It's quite fascinating and has taken on global legs. Well done. Thank you. And in those um, comments and the survey questions, what were 
people most keen to talk about? So what kinds of things did you uncover beyond access and testing type issues? Yeah, so we, we were talking about uh, the, the access to screening, then also the access to personal support workers or nursing care, uh, how that has been worked out because that we were not sure how will that work with the social distancing and how will people deal with that. Uh, we were also uh, thinking about the education part, which is a big discussion now. Uh, right at the beginning, we were thinking, okay, how are these kids going to be supported? There was the discussion of closing schools and uh, how mm -hmm. will they access their individualized education plans, their, their specific supports that they need? How will that be organized? Uh, will there be any online support or technology support? and how the healthcare is being organized uh, with the social distancing. So many of our patients could not be seen anymore in the clinic and we started to offering uh, virtual care, but we wanted to see how is that happening in other places and, uh, and how is that organized. And uh, then also uh, community services, or so like how are people getting their groceries? How are they getting their, uh, their supplies? Uh, are there any leisure activities that kids can participate and how is that organized? So we, we try to uh, address these different areas and ask about what barriers are you encountering or are you aware of solutions or get you any supports? And uh, what you mentioned at the beginning, uh, we also had that qualitative aspect where you, there were interviews. And once we started analyzing the data, those were actually the, the richest information that we got from, from these interviews with the parents and with their feedback and their very individual uh, perspectives uh, that often do not translate so well in simple numbers. Right. Kinga, I know you did some of those interviews and you also went through the comments on the survey. Um, what did people have to say about um, their ideas or perspectives about, let's start with respite and um, access to nursing supports, for example. Right, so we found that people's experiences were really checkered in this area. Um, so for example, almost half the respondents said that um, virtual care was available to them. Um, which is good, but mind you, just because something is available in theory doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, it's what people want or that it works for them. Right. Um, so in the comments, people told us that sometimes virtual care worked great. Um, at other times, there were all sorts of glitches with it. Um, and then some people mentioned that um, their medical professionals actually started making house visits during COVID, uh, which people really appreciated. Interesting. I heard about that with uh, in our first part of this series too. How how valued that was. Right. Um, another big issue um, that we found um, was respite or PSW or nursing care. Um, that was a big issue for a lot of families. Um, so on a positive note, about forty five of of our respondents, so almost half, said that nursing or PSW care was available to them. Um, but many families who normally rely on these services um, ended up canceling them because they knew that the workers were visiting multiple homes and they were worried about the risk of exposure. Um, and those are really tough decisions for a lot of families, um, especially for those um, who have children who require extensive or 24-7 care, um, because that's an immense load for a parent to take on sort of indefinitely. Um, and uh, the last thing I should note about that is that the availability and accessibility of, of these respite PSW services varies a lot between provinces. 
Um, so here in Ontario, um, quite a few families told us that um, that respite was difficult to obtain even before COVID. Um, and they didn't have sufficient funding to afford the care they needed even before COVID. Um, and so a lot of these issues are not, I mean, COVID certainly exacerbated them, um, but the cracks were in place even, even beforehand. Right, I've heard uh, that, that it really magnified pre-existing difficulties and limitations. You also talked um, about some of the barriers that families had to face if they did want to uh, access respite, or even now as they want to go back to accessing respite, that they have to, there's some out-of-pocket costs to them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, the one, the one thing that jumps out at me from from the data um, is is just the the out of pocket um, uh, the PPE expenses. Um, some of the respondents told us that the nurses or PSWs were not provided with PPE by their agencies, so that the families have to go out and and buy their own, um, and then ask ask the workers to wear them. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and what, was, uh, what were families talking about uh, in terms of education in those early days? Were there any um, observations about what, have, what would have been really helpful? Because um, Olaf mentioned, we all had those questions about how were IEPs gonna be translated to the online environment? I think as pediatricians, we're still asking those questions for our kids who are working remotely. So I'm curious, did families have any insights as to what would have been really valuable in the home setting? Um, well, first of all, Again, with education, just as with healthcare, we found that people's experiences were really checkered. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of just the availability of supports, um, about a third of the respondents told us there was no support for special education online. Um, a third said that yes, there was support and a third didn't know. Um, and then just under half the people told us that laptops or iPads were available to students who needed them. Um, then a quarter said that they were not available and, a, and again, another quarter didn't know. So a lot of variation. Um, there was also a lot of variation in terms of how online schooling was actually done at different schools and how that worked out for families. Um, and sometimes there were even differences within the same school between different classes and between how, how different teachers in the same school did things. Um, and some children did quite well with online learning once they had all the appropriate supports in place. Um, other kids just can't learn that way. They need the routine, they need the structure, they need the in-person interaction. Um, some parents, as you mentioned, told us that IEPs were not being followed, um, that the curriculum wasn't being adapted for their kids. So a lot of the parents had to do that work themselves. Um, and the other important point uh, is that for many kids, school isn't just about getting the, the content of the lessons, right? It's a place where they receive therapies or learning supports. And some of those can be done virtually, but not always. Um, so for example, one parent told us that, that when their child goes to school in person, they usually have two full-time EAs. But for online schooling, they were only given 15 minutes of online EA support in a wow. week, which is obviously a huge difference. Um, and then the last issue to underscore is that for many children, um, especially younger ones, they need their parents' support to do online schooling. Um, so the parents need to help navigate the technology and adapt the curriculum and do all of those things. 
right? So for some parents that can add up basically to a full-time job, especially if they have more than one child learning from home and each child needs to be logged in at different times and using different platforms. Absolutely. And probably even thinking about different space, uh, you know, minimizing distractions, having your sibling do their class in the same room is going to be a challenge. So um, we heard that as well, that finding even dedicated space for multiple learners can be a challenge. So um, all really good insights. And I think stuff that we're still uh, questions we're still going to be asking ourselves um, this fall and, and are asking ourselves. So with that in mind, um, Olaf, I wanted to to ask you as a developmental pediatrician, what do you think kids with developmental delay or disability need most to be successful at school this year? Well, I, I think uh, getting it back a bit uh, further to what we do in schools for kids with uh, disabilities, uh, we have for many years now advocated and implemented in Canada the principle of inclusion mm -hmm. and the the main uh, driver for that is uh, is twofold. Is uh, one is that we know that uh, kids that are included in a mainstream curriculum or with other kids of their age actually learn better from modeling from these kids, and uh, so their learning results are better. Uh, they also uh, develop better language skills and they develop better social skills. So uh, that is in the regular system. Now, in the COVID situation, we don't have not even a segregation. We have a complete isolation of these kids out of their peer group. And that um, might have a very negative effect on their further development. So I think it is really important to stress the, the importance to be in school uh, and be in the community. It's not so much about the, uh, so what I, I, when I talk to parents, I, I tell them, well, don't, don't freak out about uh, these math lessons or these English lessons. It's not so much the specific academic content that they're missing out. And that's not so, there you can catch that all up, but it is the social interactions and meeting other kids and being together with other kids. That is the important aspect that school can deliver and only school can deliver. Many of the other academic uh, stuff can be done at home if the parents have the resources, if they have the time, if they have the willingness and the skills. Um, that has been done for centuries in the past that people were taught at home by private teachers and so on. If you look into the 17th, 18th century, that was what high society was doing to teach their, their kids. But that is not all what school is about. And uh, as Kinga said, that, that social aspect and that interaction with kids, uh, that is really missing out. And I think that should be a priority uh, when we think about reopening businesses or services, it should be really, uh, the priority should be the schools and especially kids with disabilities that need it the most and that depend the most on that environment and those supports. Sounds like we need some flexible thinking around what it looks like for kids to be back in school so that they can have some of those goals met as well. That, it, as you said, it's not maybe uh, as much about the, the content and Kinga, you said school is not just about the curriculum. There's so much, so much more community that goes along with it. I think another thing I've been um, observing in, in clinic as the weeks go on in the fall is, is access to services um, for kids who have opted for the full remote learning and they're in their early transitions to school. Um, that that's, 
been, there's some real gaps there around kids even being picked up or their schools even recognizing that, oh, this child has a pre-existing condition that mm -hmm. the notes didn't get transferred over or those typical transition meetings didn't happen as they used to happen. Um, so there's, there's a lot going on there. But importance of school, more than just, more than just curriculum. We know that. All right. Um, and uh, what else did they say about um, uh, shifting gears a little bit? What did they say about the healthcare services that uh, they were accessing? Because uh, I think a lot of us are interested to know family perspectives on virtual care and the virtual appointments, how, how that's been received. And Kinga, maybe I'll start with you. What did families say about their virtual opportunities? Hmm. Um, again, you mean virtual care? Yeah. A uh, virtual health care. Um, I think again, people's experiences were were checkered, um, and it, yeah, it really depends on um, on the child and the family. So I think I would again underscore this this need for flexibility. Um, so depending on, on on sort of what's going on with the child and 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 the family situation. I think a lot of families can benefit from virtual care. Um, one mother said to me um, that you can't get Botox injections over the internet. So mm -hmm. for some stuff you need to actually see the doctor for, but if you don't actually need my kid's body, then the virtual format is great. Um, so we know that kids with medical conditions often need specialist care. And if the hospital is going to be two hours away and uh, there are three kids in the family, so it's a huge ordeal to plan the entire day just to get to that one appointment. Um, so in situations like these, a virtual appointment can save everybody a ton of time and hassle. Um, but again, um, that can be the default that the family has to, um, that's something that the, that the healthcare providers and the families have to work out together, which format, which format is better, is best for their particular situation. But it sounds like many people were interested in having it continue and seeing it as a viable option to stick around. That's the impression I got. I think a lot of families appreciate, um, and I think they would they would love it if it was kept as a as a choice for the future. Um, um, if it was an option in the future that, that that they could avail themselves of if if they needed to. Right. Right. Um, and Kinga, what additional themes emerged from those interviews? We've talked a bit about the education setting, respite support. Was there anything else you, uh, more broader themes perhaps that, that you observed? Yeah, um, there were two additional sort of big themes that, that struck me in particular. Uh, the first one was the idea that all the isolations and restrictions related to COVID are nothing new mm -hmm. for a lot of families. Um, which of course isn't literally the case because the, the, there are some things about COVID that are not that are unprecedented. Um, but I think what people meant when they say when they said that this is nothing new um, is that when you look um, at all the issues that that our society has to deal with all of a sudden, uh, families of people with disabilities have always had to deal with those. Um, and back when it was just them, nobody seemed to notice or care. Uh, but now that the whole world is affected, now these things are finally being recognized as a problem. Um, so for example, parents of medically complex children um, have mentioned a few times that for them, every winter is pretty much a lockdown situation. Um, and they've always had to limit contact with others because even a run of the mill cold or flu can land them in the hospital. 
Um, or I had a mother tell me that her son aged out of school a few years ago. Um, and since then, they've been extremely isolated um, because there are really no appropriate day programs um, or activities for him. And she's had to quit her job and, and take care of him full time. Uh, so during COVID, when I was speaking to her, she said that they were just sitting at home the way that they've been sitting at home for the past few years anyway. Um, and in fact, she said that during COVID, more opportunities became available for connecting it with others because caregiver groups start organizing virtual meetings um, and online music therapy programs uh, that her son could take advantage of and her church started offering virtual services um, and, and other things like that. Um, which leads me to the second big message that, that struck me out of those interviews. Um, and that's the idea that for people with disabilities and their families, the silver lining of COVID is that new ways of connecting are opening up that have not been available before. Um, so this particular mother um, noted that, that people with disabilities have been asking for these supports for who knows how long but when it was just them needing it, they were told that it couldn't be done. Um, but when the whole world gets put on lockdown um, and the able-bodied population needs to function, all of a sudden these things are possible. Um, so I don't want to sound too optimistic about, about the silver, silver lining of COVID, um, but it has forced us to come up with some new arrangements or solutions that might actually be helpful. Um, like virtual recreational programs and, and, and virtual mental health support and healthcare um, and all of those things we might want to consider keeping around after COVID because some families really will benefit from that. Yeah, it's interesting to think similar to uh, as we envision healthcare going forward, like some families wanted the option so that there's some choice available uh, and um, to be able to do some virtual appointments and some in-person appointments. Perhaps I'm hearing that some uh, virtual community engagement as well as in-person community engagements, once we can go back to more of those opportunities, really would be a nice way forward so that there's, there's options, there's flexibility and people can, as they move over the year, whether it be winter and a Time where they're more concerned about respiratory illness, they shift online a bit more and then have opportunities for um, in-person interaction again. It's really good insights. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit uh, about the families you talk to, Kinga, who have um, who are parents of adult uh, children with disability. What did they have to say about how they've been impacted by COVID? Right, so parents of adults with disabilities face a whole other set of issues. Um, so for adults who are out of school, um, but who are doing day programs or activities, um, most of those got canceled or at least reduced, um, meaning that these individuals have, uh, have also to, um, to deal with isolation and loss of routine and loss of their social networks. Um, for adults who live outside of the family home in residential care, uh, many of them weren't able to see their families for months. Um, their families weren't able to see them. Um, so aside from the emotional and mental health impact of that, um, there's also the fact that families often perform a lot of tangible care work within those residential facilities for their loved ones, right? And if families aren't allowed in, then who's doing it? Um, families are also often the medical backstops. Right? So if their loved one is somehow falling through the cracks, they're, they're supposed to be the ones to catch it. Um, but again, if they're not allowed to be physically present, they don't know what's going on. 
so we heard from example from one mother who has an adult son living in a care home. Um, and because of COVID, um, one of his long-standing appointments um, had been canceled um, and nobody at the care home realized that this, that this was the case and that this needed to be rescheduled so it didn't get done. Um, and the parents didn't know because they weren't really kept in the loop with what was happening. Um, so long story short, the missed appointment led to a medical emergency requiring an ambulance trip to the hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, so actually out of stories like these grew um, um, a social movement on, on, on social media, uh, the hashtag more than a visitor movement, um, which is really pushing the government to recognize the essential role that parents and caregivers play in congregate care settings. Um, and I think there's a growing awareness about that when it comes to seniors living in long-term care homes and obviously rightly so, um, but adults with disabilities who are living in group homes are also vulnerable to these things. Wow, what an important message to highlight. We've heard about the impact of isolation on people living in long-term care homes, but really less attention has been spent on adults with disability who equally rely on their families for essential care and contact, right? Um, in the last few minutes here, I wanted to uh, ask uh, both of you, what are your next steps with this research? Uh, is, is this kind of the end or are there more questions? Uh, just, you know, did it reveal more questions than answers? What are your thoughts? Olaf, I'll start uh, with you first. Yeah, okay. So uh, I think one, one aspect that came out of that and, and is the whole virtual aspect of care in, in general. So uh, at CanChart, we're really interested in, in how can we improve the care of uh, kids and their families uh, in new ways. And uh, what we're um, thinking about now as submitted, uh, working on a grant proposal is to study what would be the best support or the best way to be family-centered in the new situation that we're encountering now with uh, new uh, with more virtual services, with more indirect services, but also the opportunity to, to maybe connect more frequently or the opportunity for parents to ask questions more easily. So I think there, there are no new opportunities that, that have opened up and this is worth studying and is worth uh, learning from that. Uh, so I, I think that that is uh, that is the next step. Um, obviously, also we're interested in comparing the respo responses from the other countries that I mentioned at the beginning. If there are uh, aspects to learn from them, uh, I know from the uh, from the Portuguese version that was done in Brazil, uh, they were able to uh, add some more questions uh, based on a study that they had initiated before COVID started and could now compare. The, uh, in one group of patients that, that are kids with uh, Down syndrome, their level of activity in the home and the engagement in home activities, and those kids actually became more active and more involved in home-based activities than they were before. So that's an, uh, also an interesting insight from what happens if you stay at home and if parents are at home and if you have opportunities to engage with your child differently, that might have also positive effects on, on the child and on the development. So these are, are interesting new aspects that come out of, of the situation that we are living in. Absolutely. And, and I think uh, overall, I think the, 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 the bottom line of all that is, is something that has been also said for many years, if you 
if you focus on what is good for people with disabilities, you will come with solutions that are good for everyone. And, and I think that is an example. It's a small study, it's a small survey, but the insights that we get out of that, they are beneficial for everyone. So interesting, absolutely. Uh, Kinga, anything to add to that? Um, well, I think research is never done. Uh, <laughs> when we first planned the study, we wanted to sort of capture how people were coping with that initial shock of COVID. Um, right now we are past the initial shock. We're sort of into the living with COVID phase. Uh, so I would like to sort of check in with people again and see, you know, six months later, a year later, you know, how is life li living with COVID? Um, and also, as Olaf said, to kind of dig deeper into some of the big domains that people identified as being important to them. So healthcare being a, a big one. Um, education is another one. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of parents are choosing to keep their kids home this this year and um, and to teach them virtually. So I would love to go back and check in and see how virtual schooling is, is going for the families. Fascinating. Well, keep us posted on how your research goes or the questions you uncover around how to re-envision virtual care opportunities. I really like the idea of finding and envisioning different ways of connecting with families, not always uh, even face-to-face -face or virtual uh, in real time. We've all learned the new words of synchronous and asynchronous uh, learning, right? And I think we, we can uh, use them here too. Um, and then also the universal nature of the experience for families as you compare your data from different countries. I think that'll be really interesting. So we'll probably have to meet in this forum uh, a few months down the road, I am thinking. So uh, I will come back to you. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us with this next, um, with this series of podcasts. We really enjoyed putting it together for you. Uh, as always, if you have ideas for future podcasts, please uh, let us know through the Ponda website. I'm Jacqueline Ogilvie. This is Ponda Podcasts. Take care.